You're listening to Fair Folk Podcast. I'm Danica Boyce. This is The Wailing of the Old Timers, a record of my experience trying, and sometimes failing, to locate Iceland's living folk music tradition. In July of 2018, I spent a month in Iceland looking for performers of a style of Icelandic folk singing called Tvisangr. What I found was that the history of folk music and culture in Iceland is far more complicated than I ever could have guessed. I found myself asking, in a nation known internationally for its music innovation, why is Icelandic folk music so hard to come by? I'm standing at the edge of a village called Siglufjörður, and I'm looking down a long, sloping green valley. And aside from this narrow road, built in 1940, the rest of my view is filled by sloping mountains, partly covered at this time of year, in purple lupins. Two swans slip into the water of the fjord to my right, and an awkward grey version of them, a signet, hobbles in after. I visited this town last year, and there was something about it that made me want to come back again. And I'm not alone. People from all over Iceland, some foreigners like myself, are flocking to town this week to see some of the country's best performers and to attend classes on Icelandic folk music at a five-day folk music festival held here at the beginning of every July. I'm also going to work at a museum for folk music in town for the month called the Folk Music Centre. I am super excited to learn more about Icelandic folk music, and I'm especially looking forward to recording people singing in the traditional styles that Iceland is known for. I step into a door, or more like a door-shaped hole, cut into the side of a big old metal container, an oil drum big enough to fit dozens of people, and it's really dark inside after the daylight outside. It's my very first night in town, and already it seems I've walked into the recital of some sort of otherworldly elf choir, which is, I'm pretty sure, what every visitor to Iceland hopes to find when they step off the plane. As my eyes adjust, I see a loose circle of Icelanders in their 40s and 50s, wearing rain jackets and lopapazer, Icelandic sweaters. I recognize some of the songs they're singing, but most of them seem like they floated over on a longboat from another era entirely. I find out later that what I heard that first night in the oil drum was a rehearsal of Kvaidamanafelagith Rima. Not an elf choir after all, but almost as rare, they're a traditional singing group from the region, made up of ordinary people with an interest in Icelandic folk music. They're led by Runa Inkimundardotter, a musicologist who used to teach at the small music school here in town. She taught most of these people to sing these songs, which were almost lost in the mists of time a hundred years ago, when most Icelanders moved to the city and left the farms and their songs behind. purpose for coming to Iceland this month, aside from helping out at the Folk Music Centre here in Siglufjörður, is to research a particular style of singing called Tvisangr, or quint song, which I find to be the most fascinating musical thing that Icelanders have made, ever. 
I mean, fascinating if you're obsessed with folk singing and Iceland, which I am. The word to be sunger means literally twin song. And basically, it's a duet. But it's a very special kind of duet, because the two singers, typically men, sing almost only in parallel fifths. If you were playing one of these pieces on a piano, that would mean that most of the time, these guys would be singing five white keys apart. This particular sound hasn't been common in European music since the Middle Ages. Except, of course, in Iceland. I say most of the time they're singing five white keys apart because, while they're maintaining this strange and wonderful sonic tension, they're also occasionally trading places with each other harmonically. This means they have not only quite a large range, from very low to very high, but also that they have to have a really good ear, since traditionally, that's how people learn the style of singing. Not by sheet music, but by listening. At the end of the 19th century, though, when the Great Migration to Reykjavik began, very few people remained who could sing in this style. The men in the recordings you're hearing now were some of the last ones to learn the style by ear. A folklore enthusiast named Bjarni Thorstensen made a number of transcriptions a decade or so before these recordings were taken, and after these men passed, the practice generally died out. Now, when people learn Tvisanger, they learn it from the Thorstensen transcriptions found in a book called Islandsk Thjoslog, or Icelandic Folk Songs. I'm hoping I can find some performers of Tvisanger at the Folk Music Festival, and maybe if I'm lucky, I can get a good recording of two people singing in the style, if there are still any around. But since I'm working at a literal folk music museum, that should be easy, right? It's the first week of July. The village of Siglafjörður is bursting with visitors. Professional musicians, some from Iceland and a few from elsewhere, put on outstanding performances in venues all over town. The church, pubs, museums, even boats in the harbour. In the very first show of the festival, at the church, whose red-roofed bell tower is the visual centre point of town, Rikini Ensemble is opening the festival. A man, a woman, and two teenagers, a boy and a girl, are on stage with various folk instruments laid out in front of them. An Icelandic instrument related to the zither called a longspiel, a symphony, which is an early version of a hurdy-gurdy, and a pipe made from sheep horn are among the instruments on display, but they don't play them yet. Instead, they open with the captivating and unusual a cappella Icelandic folk song, Fagert Singer Svanren, Beautifully Sings the Swan. Performed in this concert by a daughter and her mother, this song likewise stages a conversation between a young woman and her stepmother. The young woman has had a mysterious dream. A series of cryptic images came to her that seemed plucked from the sagas, and she offers to give the stepmother a golden chest if she'll interpret the dream. Stepmother, she says, I saw the moon shining over Skauni. I saw the roots of a tree hanging over my head. I saw a bird gliding across my chest, two planets upon my knee. I saw the tide flooding up to my feet. Stepmother, read my dream. Sumar langa tíð Skýni við alla 
Marta Haldorstotter and Ern Magnusson, the leaders of Rikini Ensemble, offer a course in Icelandic folk instruments the next day. I learned that most of the instruments I saw them play the night before had been custom-made for them, after the two of them had spent years researching what instruments might have existed in Iceland in the centuries between settlement and the 20th century. They based their impressive collection on scraps and patches of information, a single mention in a manuscript, maybe. I hadn't heard much about Icelandic folk instruments aside from one, the longspell that's held at the Folk Music Centre, so I'm very surprised to see so many demonstrated here. Just the same, Marta and Ern don't exactly claim expertise in Icelandic folk instruments. We're just having fun, they say. Music Museum in Seglufjörður. This is also Bjarni Thorstensen's house. So he was a folk music collector in Iceland. He was basically the folk music collector. Um, and he was operating in Seglufjörður as a priest around 1900, when a lot of the folk music was disappearing from the farms and the rural places where people were living traditionally when the uh, Industrial Revolution happened. It's a hectic Saturday at the Folk Music Centre, since this town's population probably increases by a factor of 10 when the Folk Music Festival is on, and it's my first day working here. It will be a crash course in giving tours of the centre, which I'll be doing daily for the rest of the month after the festival is over. While I'm sorting tickets to festival performances and courses, a tall blonde guy with a red beard comes in carrying a long wooden wind instrument, maybe an Irish flute, followed by a fiddler, a guy with bagpipes, and half a dozen other young people with instruments in hand. They look a little bit like what I would describe where I'm from, in Canada, as hippies. They set up in a circle in the living room and proceed to improvise, mostly Irish tunes. The blonde guy introduces himself as Linus. I notice that when the festival organizers are around, they seem a little extra formal around him, and I can't help thinking that there must be something about him or what he's doing at the festival that's not uncontroversial. Just the same. I like him immediately. In the first few moments of chatting with Linus, I discover he's an anarchist, and I laugh because, in Canada, you don't come across anarchists very often. Or maybe it's not that. Maybe it's that I find the idea of Icelandic anarchists funny because... The political reputation of Iceland is already so radically left-wing that they hardly seem necessary. Anyway, he tells me that it's not that uncommon here. In fact, a few of the people with him are anarchists too. This is a kind of heathen poem, so that you know. Gadus Morhua, Latin for Atlantic Cod. Three young classical performers with a specialty in folk music pack the living room of the Folk Music Centre and play songs from all eras of Icelandic music, including some compositions of their own. Thank you. 
final night of the festival, people flood into an enormous boathouse in another museum, this one dedicated to the history of herring fishing in town. Musicians perform from atop a fishing boat, and we all sit around them, filling the huge boathouse in an ocean of chairs and adorable sweaters. Between acts, Gunstein Olafsson, the director of the festival, emcees the show. He's tall and blonde, and I'm starting to realize I'm going to need to find another way of describing Icelanders. I'll add that he's a composer and a conductor, but right now he's keeping the audience entertained while the next act sets up by leading them in singing popular folk songs together. I'm really impressed, since I can't remember a single time I've seen something like this happen in my home country. The folk music tradition seems so alive, so shared among people here. I'm confident I'll be able to find some traditional singers to share some Tvisunger songs with me over the course of this month. I've been at the Folk Music Centre for a couple of weeks now, and I'm surprised to find I'm having some trouble getting Icelanders to talk to me about folk music. Often, when they visit the centre, as conversation, I'll ask them what their favourite folk song is. Usually they don't have one, aside from a melody or two they learned at elementary school. In fact, many Icelanders who visit have never even heard a longspiel before, Iceland's own unique folk instrument, let alone the obscure singing style I'm here to research. Or they've heard one or two songs, usually arranged for a choir, but they don't know anyone who sings the songs in a duet, as they were in the old days. I'm invited to a dinner at the home of Gilni and Erliger, two teachers and artists who live in town. The dinner is in the garden, with a view overlooking the sloping green fjord full of seabirds and a very small but beautiful forest the couple has been growing on the property over countless years. There's a saying here, Gizni says, how do you grow a forest in Iceland? How, I say, start a hundred years ago. She introduces me to a soft-spoken man with a wide, gentle face. His name is Gustav. I discover that he actually sings Tvisunger with Erliger, Gudni's husband, and also our host. In fact, I've already heard them do it. They belong to the traditional singing group I heard the first night I arrived in the oil drum. I say, you have to come to the folk music center to sing for me. He kind of looks away and says, maybe. Later that night, they sit at a little table in the corner of the living room and sing a couple of Tvisangbar together, and I watch from behind a houseplant, spellbound, though not understanding a word they say, feeling incredibly foreign, but also very honored to be there. I've been in Iceland for most of a month and I've spoken with dozens of musicians, and so far I've found only a few people who have ever sung Tvisunger, outside of a one-off in a choir sometime, and even fewer who do it still. In fact, after surveying almost every Icelander I've heard might sing Tvisunger, it's a small contingent among an already small population, I find that there are fewer than a dozen 
and maybe just six people in the whole country who know how to sing Tvisanger and could be said to do it regularly. A fellow wrote a PhD dissertation on Tvisanger at Harvard not too long ago, and though he was happy to help me with my research, he told me he's not really performing Tvisanger these days. I've got archival recordings and a few hours of recorded conversations about Tvisanger with musicians and musicologists, and almost every single one of them tells me a similar story. And this is where it gets weird. I'm asking these professional Icelandic musicians about Tvisanger, and first, it's like, they're surprised I'd be interested in this at all. And they're very knowledgeable. They tell me all kinds of things like how it's done or where it originated, but at the end of our conversation, or in the middle somewhere, they always kind of say the same thing. But I'm not an expert, they'd say. And then they would send me to someone else who they thought was more knowledgeable, or more authentic, or more Icelandic. And that person would send me to another person who would refer me to the first, until I got to a point where I hit a feedback loop and had to conclude that I had it pretty much covered, as far as Tvisunger singers go. But here's why that's weird. I mean, first of all, yes, you are an expert. I'm literally speaking to you because you have a PhD in music, or you're Icelandic and you perform this really special singing style based on the most arcane musical theory. Second of all, this is folk music, so there are no experts, right? I mean, you learn it from your grandmother. Isn't that how this works? Then I began to think that maybe, in Iceland, this is not how it works. The experts are, somehow, not experts. Or at least, as they keep telling me, they don't think they are. Am I missing something? At first, I thought it was just typical Icelandic modesty. You know, just a cultural difference. Nobody wants to seem full of themselves. But now I'm starting to think there's more to it. This style of singing is truly amazing. It blows my mind. So why aren't more people interested in this? I mean, Iceland is the hub of indie music in Europe. So where are all of the traditional singers? This is the end of part one of The Wailing of the Old Timers, an inquiry into Iceland's near-forgotten folk music past. In this episode, I've attended a folk music festival in northern Iceland and discovered that finding people who sing in an obscure, traditional style is a bigger challenge than I had bargained for. I'm Danica Boyce, and you're listening to Fair Folk Podcast. In this episode, The Wailing of the Old Timers, I'm in the country of Iceland, researching a unique singing style called Tvisunger. This is the second half of the episode. In the first half, I attended a folk music festival in northern Iceland, and I tried, and mostly failed, to find Tvisunger singers. In this half of the episode, I find my singers, I record them, and I get some much-needed insight into the troubled and enigmatic past of music in Iceland. It's mid-July, and I'm at the Folk Music Centre, where I've spent every day of this month so far. Erdiger and Gustav, the two men from the dinner party, the guys I saw sing Tvisanger from behind a houseplant, are here. They casually sit down at a table and proceed to give a performance of Tvisunger. It's just a rehearsal, they say, but they let me record anyhow. The audience, random visitors who happened to be there when the two men came, gather on creaky wooden chairs in the living room of the Folk Music Center. But as soon as these two gray-haired Icelanders open their mouths, every chair falls silent. 
Maybe it's just because I've been waiting for this moment for weeks, but to me, it's as if the very cells of the room begin to vibrate between the narrow walls of these two parallel voices. There's something about Tvisangar that feels like it grew directly out of the earth. It's a physical experience listening to this music, and I can feel it in my stomach when the two singers switch vocal parts, though my untrained ear couldn't always say exactly when that happens. It sure is hard to get an Icelander to sing a folk song to you these days, but once they do, it's like a chain reaction. People have tears in their eyes, and suddenly it's like I can see right into them. They're bearing their souls to me. They start telling me long stories about their childhood, about their slow-talking grandfather, about the hard winters in Iceland before industrialization, and the changes when people moved to the city for a better life and left the songs behind. They tell me all this as if they remember it themselves. With their permission, I post a video of Erdiger and Gustav singing on Facebook. These two men who learned how to do it by ear, and within two days, more than 4,000 people have watched it. Even I am surprised. Tvisanger may be a faint presence in Icelandic music, but not because people aren't interested in it. Not by a long stretch. Most of them just haven't really heard it yet. But why ever not? Marta and Ern are making dinner for me in the kitchen of their home in Reykjavik. The sun is breaking through the clouds, and though it's the middle of summer, they tell me this is the first time they've seen full sun in three months. The weather can be very unpredictable in Iceland, which gives the stories of life in the pre-industrial era a darker cast. Tales of brutal plagues and volcanoes punctuate the small country's history with periodic near-extinctions of the human population, not to mention the sudden loss of whole flocks of sheep from volcanic gases. It's a wonder the Icelanders made it at all. But now we're in a comfortable mid-century modern waterfront home in Reykjavik. Ern is frying up some dinner, and we're drinking imported wine in the comfort of a heated kitchen. I ask Marta what her experience of folk music was growing up in Iceland. She tells me that Icelandic music was basically a side note in her music education, she learned instead about the more modern, continental classical traditions. Yeah, uh, when, when we started learning about music history, mm-hmm. I remember the, the teacher, she covered Icelandic music history the first 20 minutes of the first lecture. I mean, it was like we, we had no instruments, we just sang in, in the Quint song, and that was about it. And then we had some, of course, people singing in the church and... We had some folk songs that were popular, but, you know, it was, people just weren't into it. We were so focused on getting into the, the you know, the moving world. Icelandic people in the beginning of the 20th century and up until the 1960, they were not, 
looking back. They were looking onwards. They were just not into preserving or, or, or showing the world what kind of music we made. After dinner, in the living room, I get to explore their impressive folk instrument collection. This is a diatonic launchpit. The scale is a um, mixolydian scale. What is this? It's the low seven. This is the, the copy of the oldest launchpit that exists in Iceland. Erin explains how, in a very short period of time, the longspiel went from being the most popular instrument in Iceland to being abandoned altogether. There's one world where people would play diatonic longspiel, and then there's one where you require chromatic longspiel. What's changed? Of course, the new music that had come to Iceland needed a chromatic instrument. They wanted to modernize, they wanted to modernize the longspiel in the second part of the 19th century. Of course, they were very proud of the longspiel because that was the Icelandic instrument and they wanted to have all the tones so we, they could play all the new music on the longspiel. But when they changed it to chromatic, they made it so difficult to play it. And I think that was the death sentence of the longspiel when it was made chromatic. I tell him I've been having a hard time finding information about Icelandic music prior to the 20th century, and he tells me about the arrival of European music in Iceland, and the huge changes it caused in the way Icelanders made and thought about music. The music making is not very much spoken of. Educated musicians with, with instruments and instrumentalists, we're not here. This instrumental music, it starts here... And we say that the modern music comes in 1840 with the buying of the pipe organ in Domkirchen. That happens in 1840. So after that, I think the first shipment of pianos came in 1847. And then there is this um, invasion of the new European music into the Icelandic life. And... There is a part of a diary of a man, I think from 1854, and he is a musician. He plays the longspiel, he, he plays the fiddler, he's very musical, and then he goes to ship, uh, there are merchants coming from Europe, and he writes down in his diary, today I bought a new instrument, it's called accordion. And I am trying to play a song on this new instrument. And then in a week, he says, now I managed to play the first song on the accordion. And after that, he just plays the accordion. And there's no mention of fiddle or longspiel anymore. I ask Runa Ingimundardatar who organizes the traditional singing group I heard in the oil drum on my first night in town, about why she thinks it's so rare to encounter Icelandic folk music in Iceland. I was working in the folk music center for many years, and my favorite thing was to get Icelanders in, because they'd just be, oh, so there is Icelandic folk music, really? They had no idea, for the most part, they just didn't know. And if you ask an Icelander, what is Tvisengur? They just think it's two people singing. She tells me that many of the folk traditions in Iceland were not only forgotten, but were actually forbidden by the church, and that the shame that accompanied those past times continues to this day. I think Icelanders were told in the 19th century that they couldn't sing, they didn't have any instruments, 
And I think they took it totally in their, into their bloodstream and they're still reciting it back. I'm afraid that colonization has had a huge impact on us, but we just haven't woken up to that fact yet. We were under Danish rule until 1944. It was the Danish and the church. The priests and the landlords around the island, Lienzherrar, they would send reports to Denmark. Rosa Thorstensdóttir, folklorist, she was going through these writings. Some of the questions they were answering were, are there any musicians in your area? Are there any people that play instruments? This priest said, no, there's no music here at all. But history tells us that we have very famous chant singers in that area. And then, then they would say sentences like, there are no instruments here, but there are a few longspiel. So no wonder that we get these messages back saying that we do not sing, we do not have any histories. That's written in our books. That's written in, in the Danish books about Iceland. So when you put all this together, you start wondering, hmm, okay, so maybe we did have something, but the European landowners didn't like it. It was old-fashioned and ugly. They didn't like this kind of music. She cites environmental disasters that made life hard for Icelanders in the 18th century and solidified Icelandic dependence on Danish resources. The 18th century in Iceland was a terrible century. We had famine, we had a, the huge eruption, and then we had ice. So we were, after 100 years, we were 30,000 less people. And actually in the 18th century, that's when the Danish were thinking to move everyone from Iceland because there was just nobody could live here. She told me about a visitor to Iceland, an illustrator from France, who was interested in hearing folk instruments, but frustrated in his attempt. He came to a farmhouse and he would always, he would in many houses see longspiel or an instrument on the wall. But then he said, don't you play this? Their reply was that, no, playing instrument is something that is only done in happy times. And the 18th century was not a happy time in Iceland. So all of these things combined made Iceland much less musical at the end of the 18th century than before. She also gave me some insight into the contrast I saw between the wonderful engagement at the folk music festival at the beginning of the month and the near silence I encountered afterwards. This folk music festival in Siglifjörður is the classical jazz version of folk music. Because the only people in Iceland that actually have done anything with folk music are the classical musicians. So when you take that perspective into the music, then everything has to be refined and correct. That's how we are trained, classical musicians. It has to be refined and correct. And so European classical music arrived in Iceland in the late 19th century with its more danceable racket of accordions and melodiums, ultimately to replace the folk music tradition in Iceland. In those same years of rapid change, the folk music enthusiast Bjarni Thorstensen wrote hurried letters to old-timers all over the country, asking them for their songs, while a steady stream of Icelanders packed up what they could from the farms and villages and moved to the city. As I look further into how this change affected Tvisunger, I find there have been just two PhD dissertations written about the singing style before these two very recent academic works on Tvisunger. In early Icelandic history, most of the descriptions of Tvisunger took the form of very bad press. For example, complaints that people were disgracing the church by singing in such an ugly and unharmonious way. And when the folklorist Bjarni Thorstensen proposed to publish transcriptions of these songs in his book, he was widely discouraged. And in the book's intro, he reports being told, it would be anything but a pretty enterprise to publish the damned Tvisunger wailing of the old-timers. But Tvisunger wasn't the only style of Icelandic music given this treatment. In fact, throughout most of its history, 
the music of the Icelanders was openly and officially mocked in most of the reports that mention it, if they admit that it exists at all. In 1874, Konrad von Mauer, a German legal historian, declared in a political history of the country that Icelanders were, quote, completely unmusical. And that seems to be the consensus as far as the view of other, more cosmopolitan European centers went. So when professional music came to Iceland, it caused people to see themselves in a very different light. They were singing in styles not heard since the Middle Ages. They had few, if any, instruments to speak of. Like anybody would do, they compared themselves to more modern-seeming nations, and they were embarrassed. And in practice, parents stopped passing the music onto their children, in favor of teaching them classical music, and folklorists working to preserve Icelandic musical heritage have been few and far between since then. And the music, the endless songs that used to fill the living room of every turf house in Iceland, that provided the soundtrack to the sheep roundup every fall, the ritual and entertainment that lifted the farm labor, that accompanied the joys of family and religion, the legacy of centuries of knitting, singing grandmothers, just went quiet. Many people I spoke to were aware of this gap in transmission of folk culture in Iceland. A younger, maybe more radical generation, is starting to speak up about the impact this loss of folk tradition has had on the way Icelanders see themselves. Back at the Folk Music Center, a fellow named Omar opens up after another of Erdiger and Gustav's Tvisanger performances. He speaks about Denmark's oppressive influence on Icelandic culture, since they took control of the country in the 17th century, and he laments that the previous two generations didn't value their cultural inheritance enough to pass it down to the young people of today. Uh, people didn't really appreciate or, or really understand why, why we would want to keep something like that, something old to something of the old people, when they were so willing to embrace and become something of the new people, which was inherently Danish. You know, what is popular mainstream in Europe. For uh, me, looking back and, and through what I learned in school, and it is quite clear that uh, the Danish influence on the Icelandic culture has been uh, completely, has been complete. Under the Danish rule, for, you know, through the centuries, we were not allowed to own property, very little schooling, if any. All were supposed to speak Danish. Icelandic uh, was something that they spoke in be, you know, between themselves, on the docks, on the, in the work areas. Uh, so much so uh, that uh, even after rule faded, uh, many families kept this tradition of speaking Danish uh, on Sundays, especially, and in church. And uh, yeah, it, it was very, very thorough, it was through everything, and uh, kept us completely in check. We, we were meant to uh, serve the Danes to that point. I, I would like to have seen what this little nation would have done had it been left to its own devices without Danish interference, and then of course Norwegian interference, or the church for that matter. It would have been an interesting social experiment, at least. Yeah, certainly. Yeah. I think many people wish that it had. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, this is not a, a popular opinion, I think. Or at least not with the older people. Um, this is my opinion. Mm -hmm. I, I've shared this opinion with a few. And most of my age group, or my generation, share it. Whilst the older generations that know different times kind of don't. You know, we, I, I at least hear it a lot that, that this is someone that didn't live it making an opinion out of something they don't know anything about. But, I mean, it's in textbooks, it's in school, it's all there, the information is there. I think it has a lot to do with how information is interpreted for you. And for me, it, was never, it re never really made sense why we were the way we were if we had not been... You know, if it, things were so rosy, mm -hmm. as my, my parents' generation believes. Like, of course, there is. I, I honestly do believe that uh, the older generations now, with 
of course, maybe the spurning uh, of you know the younger generation's interest in it. Mm-hmm. They kind of it's dawning on them. Yes, it might have been great if I remembered this song that my grandmother used to hum, you know, or mm-hmm. or or this piece of information about this piece of rock in the middle of that valley that my grandfather used to tell me, but I can't remember anymore, you know. I'm staying on Linus's floor in Reykjavik. You remember him, the anarchist from the festival. He lives in a small apartment with his young son, Huldar, who's playing with an overtoned flute they made together recently. Linus is returning the favor from when he and his friends stayed on my floor a few weeks ago in Seglefjörder. There are instruments all over the place here, some in various states of repair or still being built. Linus is in the other room, and as I pour myself a bowl of cereal, young Huldar reaches his little hand across the table to open the carton for me. Opnath, lokas, he says, the Icelandic words for opened and closed, and I pour my milk over my cereal. Linus returns, and I tell him about how Huldar was teaching me new words. Actually, he was showing you how to open the milk, he says. He thinks people who can't speak Icelandic don't know how to do anything else either. Huldar, for the record, speaks Swedish as well, which makes following his conversations with his dad even more challenging. Linus tells me that Iceland is revered for its literature. The medieval sagas, written here, are an irreplaceable storehouse of early Norwegian and Icelandic culture and story. And Icelanders have a very active practice of kvæði, rhyming or chanting in strict metric stanzas. And there are a number of active societies for reamer chanting, based on this kvæði all over Iceland. He suggests that since Tvisangr is built on the same rhythmic structure, it wouldn't be hard for the general population to learn it. In any guest book, you find poetry. Like people, at the end of a trip, they come up with a few lines, and it's always going to be in the same form with alliteration and rhyming. There's a couple of forms that are most common, and that's how Kvaivi works. And Tvisangr, like all of these traditional singing practices are based around that you have these forms and then you have these melodies and these melodies they go with these forms but it means that it can be a medium for the poetry so instead of just reciting it you sing it but i i really think that to be is something we teach in should be something we teach in schools and that when people get together when they've written this in their guest book that they can then sing it together with their friends and they can harmonize each other. Mm-hmm. And I actually tried this with a few friends now of teaching them the most simple stemma that I know mm-hmm. and then and, and teaching it with the lagapoide that goes with it, the like standard poem that goes with it. Mm-hmm. And then I can just suggest another poem that's more relevant to us. So I think Tvisun could really could have a place in Icelandic society and it's not that difficult to learn and if if kids are learning music anyway in school like why not learn this thing that is incredibly strange and incredibly Icelandic poetry has this like really really special place in Iceland and always has in all of the sagas it's really important Uh, all of the heroes of the sagas are also poets. I think like, I think Eid Skatlgrimsson is supposed to have written his first poem when he was like four. And it's like the same week that he murdered his first man or something, you know, like... It's, yeah, it's it's like the ultimate show of wit. Is that Not only can you say something that's smart, but you can say it in, in a formal way. We call it in, in bound language. There is this huge culture for poetry, and it's this undercurrent, you know? It's never celebrated in in any kind of lofty way. It's not like it comes up ever in TV or anything. It's just this absolutely oral tradition, this absolutely like interpersonal tradition. 
tweeting it could be one of the ways also that like you know to make it more participatory that it's not something you just write down and you show someone but you can sing it together i ask him why participation is so important to him no it's hard to explain something that seems so obvious that folk music should be participatory that it's the the fundamental thing about it like it's the reason why i'm interested in folk music is because it is participatory um and it's the reason why I think it's important that there's a folk music scene in Iceland because Iceland needs a music scene that is participatory, that is open and inclusive. Because now, if you want to play music, but you don't want to write your own music, you can be a classical musician, which is just incredibly demanding and, and straining and a bit inhuman. Like or inhumane, right, maybe. Um, or jazz, you know, which is a bit milder, but it's really snobbish and elitist in Iceland. There's no place where you can just play music with people. And and so many Icelandic people learn how to play instruments. Like, thousands of thousands of kids learn to play music, and then most of them drop out when they're teenagers like the absolute majority, because their music edu- education has all been centered around them becoming first violin, you know, learning posture rather than the joy of playing music with people. It just makes me so sad and so frustrated that people have spent a decade learning to play an instrument. And then when it comes down to it, they can't sit opposite to another musician and play at all. Like, if you're in a party, probably half of the people that are there have learned to play an instrument. But you couldn't bring out instruments and everybody just starts playing. Like, because they don't have any common repertoire. And, well, I mean, that's the biggest thing. And that's 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 what folk music should be, is number one thing that folk music should be, is a culture's common repertoire. And... And they and they've all learned uh, with with sheet music to play someone else's music to play music that is not relevant to them, and that's the biggest challenge with making a folk scene. You know, trying to make a revival is making folk music important, making folk music relevant to people. That's the really hard part, and that's the thing that I think no one in Iceland has tried to do yet. I ask also about the gap in historic information about Icelandic folk music and how it seems there's so little written about that long and shadowy period between the Middle Ages and the modern era. I mean, it's easy to forget that Iceland was colonized for hundreds of years, and both the, both the Danish state and the church were very powerful here, and, and, and there are so many complex things here. Like There are lots of hints that we have throughout history of that there's, there, there was a lot more that went on in Iceland than what the priests wrote down. Like there's this huge, these huge ruins of a whaling factory making whale oil in the West Fjords, and it's built with stones from Basque country. And the theory is that the, you know the the Basque people and maybe other nationalities too had this huge operation going on, and it must have been common knowledge because the smoke would have been seen from very far away, but the some somehow the priests that you know did the rounds and wrote down what was happening everywhere there was some kind of agreement that they wouldn't tell the bishop or whatever there's a very complex like history of like what we know about what happened in iceland and what and what actually happened so jon thorstenson for like i think three decades or something was on pay to write a book about icelandic music like pre-1800s Icelandic music. And he never finished it. He's a, this Icelandic composer. I think he was a communist. Like an, anybody, like all of the interesting characters in Icelandic history were communists. His book was finished post-mortem by, it was the Icelandic Museum of Music. But they only published 50 copies. So I've been like talking to every human that I can think of about this subject. And then just like one day I just like come across this book in the library in Kopenhagen and there's only like three libraries in the country that have a copy like how can this be 
this huge thing, this huge significant piece of writing about a subject that nobody else has written about. And there's 50 copies and you can't get it at the, you know, at the National Library. And I think the next step is founding an organization for Icelandic folk music. There is none. There is no organization for Icelandic folk music in Iceland. Like, that's insane. And one of the first things we need to do is get these people, like getting these people that have all this knowledge to start, you know, passing it on, you know, and in as a informal way as is possible. As Linus was telling me all these things, and I saw his passion for making folk music accessible to ordinary people, I began to realize that when he and his friends appeared at the Folk Music Center that day, early in July, playing Irish traditional music, that they were making a political statement. They were occupying the festival. I mean, they were doing it very gently, and evidently with permission, but they were launching a very subtle protest, not of the festival itself, I think, but of the professionalization of music in Iceland in general, which of course had flown way over my head at the time. Though Icelandic folk music has had a rocky and unglorious history, people like Linus, Runa, Gunstein, Örn, Marta, Ulliger, and Gustav aren't about to give up on it either. I thought back to my conversation with Örn. Something he had said stood out to me and seemed to summarize the attitude of those people who are fighting to keep folk music in Iceland expanding into new territory in spite of the hardship of the past. I think folk culture is always alive. I, I think we wouldn't be able to kill it. it it's somewhere. It's with the, the mother singing her child to sleep. And it's ever-changing. Uh, maybe the tradition of, of this special kind of culture is fades away or gets into the background or, or, and then somebody revitalizes it again, if you can say so. It's something that, that, that is always there. I want to talk about dreams. After all, dreams are a lot like the past. We slowly wake from childhood or from sleep, hands full of enigmatic and blurred images. They may seem frightening, archaic, or at worst, meaningless. But how we interpret those images and what we choose to do with that interpretation quickly determines our future. The song I heard Rikini Ensemble play in the church at the opening of the Siglafjörður Folk Music Festival, Fagert Singer Svanerin, Beautifully Sings the Swan, played in my head constantly for months after my time in Iceland was over. You'll remember the song told the story of a girl who had a mysterious dream, and she asked her stepmother to interpret it. In the song's second half, the girl who dreamt of moonlight, birds, trees, and tides hears from her stepmother the meaning of her dream. Maybe she was nervous about what the old woman would tell her, and that's why she offered her a golden chest before sharing the contents of her dream. She is a stepmother, after all, and we know that stepmothers in medieval stories don't always have your best interests at heart. But this stepmother comes through. She says, when you saw the moon shining over Skowney, that meant your future husband will rule over that land. The tree limbs you saw bending low... They represent all of the people who will bow down to you. The two planets on your knee, those will be two daughters. And the bird you saw on your chest, that's a beautiful sun. Because you saw the tide flowing up to your feet, your life will be flooded with blessings. And, she says, you can keep your golden chest. Fagert Svanren is a dialogue between parent and child, an interpretation of the past and a negotiation of what the future will hold. 
Erin and Marta play Icelandic folk songs together with their children in a band. Linus is making overtone flutes with his son, and the generation before gave their children the professional music training they wished they'd had. When we pass things on to our children, the intentional things anyway, we try to give them what will best equip them to survive. Because, more than anything, we want them to make it. So, unable to anticipate the future and its demands, we give them, wholeheartedly, the things that we needed. We modern people can learn a lot from our history. Which will be the moving parts that we decide to keep? Which traditions do we want to carry on, and which do we want to leave behind? It's all in how you read the dream. Sometime after my month in Iceland, I checked in with Linus to see how things were going. Here's what he told me. Hey, Danica. I'm not sure if this is way too late, but decided just to go for it. Like I wrote, it's been a really exciting time. The past four months we've been doing this monthly Sönkvaka. It means literally song wake. And we've been teaching traditional Icelandic song that has been neglected for the most part. Some of the songs that we're singing, I don't know if if they have been recorded or performed in modern history. And it's a, we get we get a st- steady group of people and just that feeling of of you know when we when we're doing the tvisöngur and that feeling of when the the whole room gets it and we have the whole room singing in in fifths. It's an amazing feeling. It's my favorite feeling. It's a very interesting time. I think a lot of things are going to happen this year that haven't, you know, that have kind of never happened before. I think this is, I think this is the year of the revival. (laughs) If I'm, you know, if I'm bold. Thank you to the many musicians, researchers, and friends who contributed music, personality, and information to this episode. I owe special thanks to Gunstein Olafsson, Linus Ori, Eilver Eilfsson, Erin Magnusson and Marta Heldorsdottir, Kimberly Kennedy, Runa Ingimundardottir, Guthany Robertsdottir, Erliger Christensen, and Gustav Danielsson. Thank you also to the Icelandic Folk Music Centre in Siglafjörður and Herhuzith Artist Residency for hosting and helping me while I researched this topic. I also used this research toward a conference paper on Tvisinger at the International Symposium on Traditional Polyphony in Tbilisi, Georgia. If you'd like to read the paper, you can find a link in the show notes, along with the names of contributors to this episode. Fair Folk is a podcast devoted to bringing folk tradition to life. You can find it on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. The intro music is by Sylvia Woods. 
If you enjoy the podcast, please share it with your girlfriend, your dad, your buddy in marketing, or the Iceland enthusiast in your life. If you want more of Fair Folk, I share an episode on the last day of every month on Patreon. This monthly episode is a calendar of folk custom, feast, and ritual from various regions of Europe. It also includes suggestions on how you can integrate folklore into your daily life in ways that are in line with your own background and values without appropriation. Go to patreon.com slash fairfolkcast to get this month's episode and access all the previous episodes, or simply if you'd like to support the project. Thank you for listening. I'll talk to you soon. Burter dagur ljóttur hjarta horfið allt sem forðum var. Inn í nætur sortan svarta siglir hugans bleika far. Illspá þilur austan drungin emur á þökum vindurinn. Skuggaleg og sköpum þrungin skríður nótt í bæinn minn. Sárar aldrei kuldans kendi kvíðin sker hinn bitra sig. Þristu varla vina hendi vetra langt í sömu byggð. Þú ert farin aldrei aftur, aldrei framar þig ég sé. Heiftum slungin hulin kraftur hefur rofið tvekja vér. Eftir þennan vetur vorið varla hugnast mér að sjá. Heyr ég gustin greikka sporið, geymir hann í að auða spá.